As vice president, first of all, you're unique in that you obviously served a considerable amount of time in the Senate. You presided over the Senate. Uh, you were willing to go back to the Senate uh, later on. And yet the Senate, I gather, has changed significantly during those 40 years or so. Um, what was it like when, when, you, when you went there in the, in the beginning? And, and what's your sense of how it's changed? Well, I, I think it has changed, and I underlined the word think, because I'm, 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 I know it's changed in my own mind, but uh, others might disagree with it. I think when uh, I came to the Senate, uh, when Dole came to the Senate, uh, I think 68, four years later, it, while it was partisan, we had our debates and all that stuff, there was a kind of an underlying sense of civility of, uh, you know, this is, we're all members of this club and we, we got to know each other and we would uh, crack jokes and wherever we could, we'd try to find ways of doing things together. The, the, as Humphrey used to say, the only way a majority can get done what it needs to do is with the minority's help. And we, we sort of went at it that way. Um, and I think now, although I hope it's changing, I think now the, the kind of the belligerence, the partisanship, you know, the idea that it's that don't just defeat the person in an argument, defeat the person. It's, it's a different mood. I hope I'm wrong on that, but some of it looks uh, meaner than I remember and, as and being some, the case. And sometimes not only defeat the person, but destroy the person. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, like a vengeance or something, and, and it it shouldn't be that way. It doesn't help anybody. The public doesn't like it, uh, and I often wonder why it continues. Do you think one factor could be that when you, and for that matter Bob Dole, first arrived in the Senate, you had, first of all, a significant number of Southern conservative Democrats in your party, and there were a significant number of moderate to liberal Eastern and Midwestern Republicans in their party, that each party yes. was much more diverse. Yes. And that they had to find some kind of consensus internally before yeah. they could operate externally. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Um, for, you know, the, the sort of moderate Republicans and the moderate Democrats almost had to work together because the, the, the Southerners in those days, although they were Democrats, Many of them came out of that old Southern tradition. Uh, back in those days, we'd yet to pass the civil rights legislation. The uh, party rules had not changed to prohibit segregated delegations. And so, it, on, at least on the great civil rights issues and a lot of other issues, uh, you couldn't make any headway down there. So you had to cut across party lines. And of course, um, the, at that point, the Republican Party still had the Lincoln tradition that, of being uh, solid on civil rights. Uh, some of that, I think, is diminished, but at that time, it was, uh, it was fairly easy to put together uh, coalitions, enthusiastic coalitions, not just paste jobs, uh, on, uh, on the Civil Rights Act. And yet, I assume you established friendships with, with Southern... Oh, yeah. Democrats. Oh yes, uh, yeah, absolutely, and and even there you would find like on agricultural things you'd find ways to work together. 
I served on the Ag Committee for some years. It did Bob Dole, and we all tried, worked with Southerners. Uh, and um, yes, we, we would uh, we would we would find ways to work together. And it doesn't seem to me uh, that there was bitterness even there. Sometimes, when the civil rights issues got really hot, you you would see the hackles rise. But uh, mostly we'd get along, on a personal level, quite well. You know, it's fascinating. I, more than one person with whom we've spoken, I remember Bob Packwood, for yeah. example, and I believe, I think Alan Simpson said the same thing. They both said they were given advice that one of the first things they should do was to cultivate John Stennis. Yeah. Which on the surface would seem yeah. Uh, yeah. counterintuitive. Yeah. No, that, that makes sense to me. Uh, John's not going to change, was not going to change on civil rights. But he was a uh, courtly uh, judicial, I think he had been a judge, and he had that in his, in his demeanor. He was always uh, open, and I think he would try to be accommodative to the extent he could, uh, measured against his politics. Were staffs smaller in those days? Oh, yeah. Uh, and the... Um, the, 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 we were, when I got there, they were just getting over this old situation where the senior uh, whales in the Senate got all the staff and, and the new senators that come in wouldn't get anything. I went on uh, banking with uh, John Sparkman and I went on uh, with, with Willis Robertson and I went on housing with Sparkman. And their tradition was they kept all the staff for themselves, and you could use their staff. So it, as they went along later years, they started giving freshmen a chance to pick one or two staff members. And were, is it true freshmen were supposed to be seen and not heard? Well, I, I, I'm told that was true before I arrived there. But that one good thing Lyndon Johnson did there, he tried to empower freshman senators with strong committees and he tried to encourage him to speak out so long as it didn't criticize him. <laughs> but, so I think that, that tradition had broken up some by the time I was there. It's interesting to know because, of course, obviously Dole had been both majority and minority yeah. leader. But working back from that, people like Mike Mansfield, who seemed to be universally respected. Absolutely. Plus he had the numbers, as Dole yeah. would say. It's a lot easier to, to lead when you've got 67 senators. Right, right. But, In some ways it's easier to lead. In some ways it's tougher. But anyway. You know, and how? How? And, and, well, you know, you try to keep 67 people happy uh, where uh, you have the internal jealousies and the kind of um, long-term, stable and unchanging numbers. I think it took a, a remarkable, almost saintly person like Mike Mansfield, who was trusted in the South and the North, to kind of hold it together. A lot of people couldn't have done it. What was it? I mean, the Johnson legend is—is is the legend for real? What? How much of that was Lyndon Johnson's personality, temperament, and how much were the instruments available to a majority leader in those days? Well, I think you have to give Lyndon a lot of credit. He was a—he was the master of the Senate. He knew the rules. He was absolutely tireless. He uh, would set an agenda, and he would work that Senate and work that Senate, and he got things done that no one else could do. And the Senate had almost become comatose 
before he took over. It was so wedded to its rigidities that hardly anyone could put enough of it together to do business. And Lyndon came in as majority leader and um, I think uh, did remarkable, remarkable things. I don't think we'd have had the civil rights laws at least uh, within the next 10 or 20 years without him. And we had to do that. Was it, in fact, the world's greatest deliberative body? Or is that oratorical tradition beginning to fade? I think it can be the world's greatest deliberative body. And I think most parliamentary institutions cannot be because of their rules and numbers. And, but I don't think it is as much as it should be right now. And the nation, in a desperate way, needs these great issues debated fully, completely, in front of uh, the American people. And only the Senate can do that. And so I've been around when the Senate has performed that function. And it, it's, 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 um, it's, it's the most unique, special institution, a parliament institution in the world by far. Almost every upper body in the parliamentary systems, like in the House of Counselors in, in Japan, they become somewhat atrophied with less jurisdiction and without the same power as the lower house. Only in America, in the United States Senate, has the upper house become stronger over the history of the country. And, and that gives them that special stature, but I think it should be taken only with a sense of responsibility about what the Senate has to do to stand up and debate these issues. And presumably there's been a sea change in how the media covers the Senate and issues. I mean, clearly there was a very serious, profound national debate at the time of the Civil Rights Bills in the oh, 60s, yes, yes. and certainly the Voting Rights Act right. after Selma. Um, and, and there's almost a sense of the trivial about so much of what, whether, I mean, it's as if we're not addressing issues at all. Well, we're, we're, we're I mean, how much of that is the media? You know, I'm, I, I, I'm not sure. I think if the Senate were really debating these great questions, if we had a really serious debate about Iraq, for example, I'd be very surprised if the press didn't cover that very carefully. If there were hearings, real hearings, like the old Army McCarthy hearings or the one about General MacArthur or the Fulbright hearings on Vietnam, or the church hearings on the intelligence, the great moments when the Senate did what for the country, what it could not do for itself. The press and the cameras were there. And so I think some of this begins with whether there's news or not. Yeah. And why do you think we're not having those? There's certainly no shortage of issues that warrant those kinds of hearings. My Oh, yes, yes, yes. I think that the that there's two or three things at work here. One, uh, and I don't want to sound partisan here, but I think that we've never had a president who has consistently and completely rejected the balance of power, the checks and balances that I think the Constitution requires, as has this president. And through a whole range of strategies, 
They have blocked the production of documents. They have refused to testify. They have claimed executive privilege. They have issued signing statements repudiating the, the laws they've just signed into, the president just signed into law. And all across, there's a kind of a, a breakdown in the process of the accountability, the oversight uh, that, that the uh, Constitution, I think, intends. Now, let me ask you, um, you arrived in the Senate in 64, and Dole came four years later. 68. Uh, there's a, a, a Nixon's in the White House. Um, first president since Zachary Taylor to uh, have both houses controlled by the opposition. Right. And Dole arrives as a newcomer and is quickly dubbed the sheriff of the Senate. Yep. Uh, tell me about that. One senses that he, more than most, illustrates at least the capacity for growth. Yes. Over over time. Yeah. yeah. And uh, but in order to demonstrate growth, you have to go back to the beginning. What What was Bob Dole like when he arrived in the Senate? Somebody said politicians either grow or they swell, and Bob grew. And I was there when he arrived, and he was um, he had been in the House. And I think he brought a lot of that House idea of our team versus your team into the Senate chamber. And I remember a painful afternoon when he was uh, on his feet regaling his Senate colleagues for not voting as a unit on some political issue and berating them in front of the press about who do they think they are, aren't they Republicans, and so on. Uh, and, um, boy, I heard a lot of, uh, of negative comments about that. And I think he spent some time living that down. Of course, he was also chairman of the RNC uh, yes, early on. at the same time. At the same time. Yeah. But I could see him change. And... and um, uh, um, and he got over that stuff, and I think partly because of experience with Nixon, uh, probably he found those years of the RNC, in the end, very dispiriting, and he found the Senate a better place for his life and what he believed in than some of that other politics that used to be so important to him. And, of course, he also had the near-death experience of 74. Yes. When he came very close to losing yes. that seat. Yes. Uh, you know, he... He, um, we used to do a lot with Bob Dole, Humphrey did. Humphrey and Dole were very close. Because were they close from the beginning? Or was I, think, I, I think maybe it took Dole a couple of years before he got off his first approach, the House approach, I might call, and became uh, what, what he really became an excellent senator. And, but he, I think he began working with all of us on farm issues. We're all from the farm block. We all had farmers. We had rural issues. We had, uh, we had things we, we could work on together. Our voters expected us to work on it together. Each state has two senators, and each of us are important. And then, uh, Bob, but Bob Dole did more than that. He helped shape the food stamp program, the school lunch, the school breakfast programs, and he went beyond the traditional farm state senator adding a conservative voice to the use of food to help some real social problems in America. And he really helped give it legitimacy 
and gave us the oomph to pass it. And it's, of course, ironic that um, one person with whom he worked very closely on that was George McGovern. Absolutely. Who he had been you know, beating <laughs> yeah. up on as yeah. RNC chairman yeah. in 72. Yeah. Uh, uh, Bob Dole and Humphrey used to go down to Miami, Florida. They had a friend, Dwayne Andrews, yes. yeah. and sometimes they'd get down there around Christmas and they'd have a good time, their families would be there. No, they were they were good friends, but you'd you'd see them on the campaign trail, listen to their speeches, <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. But it was possible to oh, yeah. compartmentalize. Yeah, and that's that's what I remember about those days. Um, the, I think it was Tip O'Neill said politics ends at six o'clock. Uh, people would go off that floor. Uh, I remember one time I was at a hearing. Howard Baker gave, came in. I got mad at him, and I said some uh, sharp things to him, and he got mad at me, and, uh, and we walked out of the room together. I said, Howard, I'm trying to think of what I was mad about. He said, you know, I was having the same problem. We, in those days, you'd try to diminish those disputes and, yeah. and keep a personal connection. That was part of the joy of the Senate. Well, you know, it's, it's as if, I mean, in a nutshell, you tried to narrow differences rather than exploit them. Right, right. And, and there were such strengths to be found in finding that human connection. So many ways in which you could uh, solve problems. You know, uh, Tom Eagleton, God bless him, once talked about the Senate as this remarkable institution that kept the Union together as we moved to the West, as we, as we, we had to have the Civil War, but as we started to get race behind us, as we started to deal with all the industrialization, all these different changes that had ruined so many other countries, somehow America kept it going. And, and the great instrument for compromise and reconciliation was always and continues to be the U.S. Senate. And I believe to do that, the senators themselves have to believe that compromise can be uh, and must be an essential part of public service. Were there people in particular on the other side of the aisle that you found yourself working with? Oh, yeah. Well, I worked with Bob Dole on a lot of on the agricultural stuff and on the food staff things, the Hunger Commission. Do you think that was an eye-opening experience for him? Um, because it, he had, you know, I often thought, people emphasize, understandably, his war experiences yes, and all that. Yes, yes. I've often thought they tend to overlook the defining experience of growing up in the Dust Bowl, in yes. the Depression, with no oh, money yeah. and no prospects. Right, and, and poor, uh, he came from a, a, a small rural county. I, I, I'm sure he didn't have much money. And all of them went through the, the you know, the horrors of, of the, the uh, great collapse of land prices and the, and the 30s, the Depression, so on. Hit farmers almost worse than anybody. I don't think any of them ever got over it. I've often wondered, uh, I think there's a little bit of the populist. Oh, yes. In Dole. And that's, that's what helped build him as a leader, I think. You asked me a moment ago about the food stamp and school lunches and so on. If you'd asked me in 68, would Bob Dole do something like that, I'd say I doubt it. But as he developed, he not only did it, he was a leader. And he knew what he was doing. There are a lot of uh, right-wingers that, that resented what he was doing. But he, he was able to shape these issues in a way that really made a big difference. 
uh, for every school child. I know he cherished the friendship with Humphrey. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was something that yeah. really... They had, uh, you know, they were down there, as I mentioned, in Florida together, but they, they would work together on all these. They, I think they were on the Agriculture Committee together for 25 years. Uh, when I, uh, I was at uh, Humphrey's funeral in the rotunda, Bob Dole was one of the first people to come in the rotunda. No, they were very close. And I think, I think they talked not long before oh, they did. Humphrey died. Yeah, they were on the phone together. I think Bob came over to see him. Hmm. Yeah. Why do you think it's so difficult for senators to move directly from the Senate to the White House? And I, and I wonder, I'll break that down, if there isn't a kind of, for example, in Dole's case, almost a, a different senatorial lingo. You know, you stay inside the Beltway, and, and you begin to develop this shorthand, yeah. and, and, and it doesn't translate yeah. outside the beltway. Is that one factor? Well, I've, you know, I've got some theories about it. They're only theories. Uh, senators, by and large, have not done well running for the presidency. There's something that the public is concerned about. I think part of it is that take Bob Dole, uh, who'd been around the Congress a long time. He knew these issues. He knew about appropriations and the budget. He knew about what was possible and what wasn't possible. He'd been around long enough to see many dreams turn into dust. Uh, and, and you get a certain kind of, uh, uh, say, mature view about how politics works. And I think that uh, when you go out and run for president, it helps to be naive. You don't really believe you could do all this stuff, and so it sparkles in your eyes, and then find out later how it happened. Once you've been through it, time and again, as Bob Dolan, it, it doesn't sparkle the same way. And when you have a mordant sense of humor yeah, to begin did. with, yeah. I mean, it's sort of, you know. Yeah. It's not really dawn in America there. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> the... Um, the other thing, of course, is um, I think that um, uh, in the Senate, if you're there for a while, you vote on everything. You vote over and over again on everything. And so it's harder to run for president and say this is where you stand uh, in a fresh way when you've had 17 votes on that issue uh, in, in the Senate. So a candidate's range of movement is believable movement is reduced, and I think that the, uh, the, the appeal for change is easier for an outsider than for someone. You know, the insider will argue experience, the outsider will say fresh start. And yeah, we're seeing that. And Americans it, usually go for the fresh start, yeah. and the governor, that's usually what it is, can argue that he's been an executive and the senator is only a windbag. Is it exaggerated, the tendency of senators, once they arrive in the Senate, to look in the mirror and see potential presidents? Well, uh, Bob Dole's, uh, not Bob Dole, uh, uh, the uh, DNC chairman, Bob. Strauss? Yeah, Bob, my friend yeah. Bob. Yeah. Bob yeah. Strauss said he had a secret list of 10 senators who were not interested in running for president. So, no, it, it is a kind of a... Uh, infectious disease there. I think once a senator starts doing well and people back home start 
feeling good about the person that his friends started saying, say, you should be president. And this, this has happened uh, somewhat autobiographical in this case. <laughs> well, I was going to say, and when did, when, did you, when did you begin to think about that? Well, I was in, the, I think, the sixth grade. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Um, 72 or something like that. Yeah. And, of course, now you famously said, what was the line about not staying at the Holiday Inn? Yeah, I didn't want to spend the rest of my, rest of my life in Holiday Inns. And then when I ended up running for vice president with Carter, I got confronted with that right away. And I said, well, they've all been redone. <laughs> oh, it's all right. But I wonder, in a curious sort of way, I wonder if that didn't recommend you to, to Carter. I mean, as, as a, let's face it, traditionally presidents pick a running mate and then look over his shoulder to see if he's yeah. got ambitions to, yeah. you know. And, yeah. and from the beginning, that never seemed to be an issue between you and President no, Carter. No, and I think it says something about Carter. Um, I don't think I think a lot of times vice presidents have trouble with their president because they're reminding them of mortality as a kind of a Shakespearean relationship there that uh, can raise doubts and and but I don't think Carter had any of those concerns at all at least if he did I never sensed them and so it allowed us to work without that level of uh, of uh, Difficulty, and I think I I believe we had not only did we break institutional grounds, no one had done what Carter did before, but I think we proved it could really work and help a president, and um, if should it occur, help uh, educate a vice president to become a better president. Um, you and Bob Dole would find yourselves running against each other. Yes. in '76. Yeah. How 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 did you? get to be on the Democratic ticket? I think that uh, the, the Carter, who knew, who was the putative nominee and had, um, I think, the choice, almost whoever he wanted, uh, looked at a range of candidates, went up to Congress and checked all, this, all of us out. And I think that I fit what he needed. I could help him in the North, where he was having some troubles, and in the Midwest. Um, I, I, I had a lot of friends that I think would be stronger for the ticket. There are others who could have done the same thing, but I think that, that I could do it. And uh, I think he liked the sorts of things I was doing in the Senate and the things that I was interested in, and in a strange, wonderful way to me. I was a northern civil rights advocate. I, was, I got that from Humphrey. I got it from my father. I thought that's what my faith told me to be for. And I was involved in almost every civil rights fight over all those years. And suddenly, for the first time in 100 years, 20 years, you have a southern candidate for president with a strong civil rights record. And I was really thrilled by what that could mean in terms of putting that issue that has so dogged our country behind us finally. And I think that was a, a big attraction uh, in both directions. And people forget, it's amazing how the electoral calendar yeah. reverses itself. 30 years ago, of course, you, you swept the South, yeah. and Ford took Michigan, New right. Jersey, Connecticut, yeah. right. California. Right. It's just yeah. extraordinary. And we, and we had a cliffhanger. Yeah. 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 And we, we finally won at 3 in the morning with Mississippi in 1976. 
Now, I've always wanted to ask you, because uh, needless to say, being around him, it's a sensitive subject. When you were standing there in the middle of that debate, and you heard him talk about Democrat wars, yeah. did you think to yourself, oh, thank you, God, <laughs> for, yeah. for delivering me this? Uh, something like that. <laughs> well, you know, uh, we had had a meeting, and I'm sure he had a meeting, trying to anticipate what would come up in the debate. And it just at the begin. this was a, you know, kind of a trial run, so we're ready. And the last thing that was raised, just as we were closing the meeting, somebody said, I'll bet that Bob Dole will say that the Democrat Party caused World War II. I said, you're crazy. He said, no. He said, he says that on the campaign trail. I'll bet you'll hear it again. <laughs> and he did it. And, you know, it, uh, it, it, uh, it was devastating. The public just did not want that. And it was just a bad day for Bob Dole. It really wasn't what he meant at all, but it came out, and I think it, was, uh, it really was decisive. Did, did you know instantly? Yeah, I knew, I, knew what he was, I knew where he was going. You know, politicians are not very complex. <laughs> We're all given these speeches. We all got our best lines, and I was aware of this one. I just didn't think he'd use it. Now, to go back, now, so did you have an um, actual kind of a rehearsal Beforehand, I mean, did someone play Dole? And but no, we or? didn't. We weren't that sophisticated in those days. We just sat down with eight or ten people uh, who had studied the issues, and we discussed what the issues would be and what Dole has been saying, what he might say, what I would say, and that sort of thing. We didn't have this mock debate stuff that is now standard. And what did your running mate, did he talk to you that night after yeah, the debate? <laughs> he was very pleased. <laughs> he knew. Uh, and... Uh, the, the, you know, the election was very close, the campaign was very close, and I think we opened up a lead of two or three points the next day. And, you know, that, that it was that and, and uh, the remarkable thing that Ford did in his debate with Carter, where you remember he said in response to Max Frankel, uh, Poland is free. And Frankel figured he just didn't hear the question right, and went over it again, and in effect, <laughs> told Ford, better give a different answer. And Ford, no, he jumped right in there and said it again. So those two things, I think, really opened up issues that helped us win. And you know, the fascinating thing is, he knew, he knew. Sure. Of course, he's so stubborn. You know, he wouldn't give that in. That was probably you know? yeah. But yeah. the thing was, he, he had visited. Because if you listen to the rest of the question, yeah. he talks about Poland, he talks about Romania, he talks about Yugoslavia. Yeah. Three countries that he visited right. and been very well received. And right. If he just put it in that you know, context. There'd been no trouble. But, but, but he somehow wanted us, the language he used, to believe that Poland was free. And it was not yet free. Yeah. And uh, that was, uh, and, and three or four days later, he corrected it. But yeah. it, it, damage had been done. Years later, when we, we redid the museum, and the Polish gaffe, plays over and over. It's in the exhibit. Yeah. And uh, we're taking them through. I said, see, you weren't wrong. You were just ahead of your time. Yeah, right. you know? uh, it took it's a good. while, though, before you could laugh about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah it, it must have been painful. What, how would you characterize, the, the, in your view, the, the, the main issues, the defining issues in the 76 campaign? And particularly the things that you were talk I, I, out there talking about. I, I think the pardon had more to do with the outcome of that election than is the, the pundits have said. Uh, 
and uh, uh, I say that because the few times I used the issue, the response from the audience almost scared me. A kind of anger. Uh, they wanted, they wanted some kind of closure on that that was different than the one they had, and there were suspicions about what went into it. I don't think there's anything to those suspicions, but I think that hung over the whole campaign. They always say that every new president is an antidote for the last president. I think Carter got a lot of mileage out of the feeling that he was honest and direct and would not do this sort of thing. And uh, Ford and, and Dole were unable to really erase that concern. So there were many other things. Uh, the debate gaffes had a lot to do with it. Um, you know, I think anybody who runs as a successor president, not one who's been elected, is sort of half a president. There's kind of a burden of proof that that Ford had to carry because he wasn't quite he was president, right? But one president people hadn't put him there. Yeah. They put him in as vice they hadn't even put him in as vice president. So there was a little bit of that. I don't think Dole uh, was uh, really proved to be a add much to uh, the Ford formula. Um, he might have added a lot to others, but the way Ford's strength and Dole's strength, I think they tended to complement each other. It's interesting because, uh, you know, the conversations I've had with both of them, Ford thought at the time mm -hmm. that, you know, I mean, they were so far down in the polls yes. that they didn't have the base. Right. They didn't have the, they didn't have the agricultural Midwest. Right. And I mean the Dakotas and Kansas right. and Nebraska. Right. Um, and so I whether it's a rationalization after the fact yeah. or a factor at the time, yeah. you know, and I think they also thought that it would be acceptable to the Reagan yeah. wing of the party. And, and that so, was that's an important thing, don't you think, that Reagan challenged Ford and came very close to upending him, and Ford was uh, thinking very carefully about how he could restore that strength. Uh, I think that's why he set aside Rockefeller and then pick Dole, because Rock, with Rockefeller, he'd never get the, the Reagan people back. And so I think picking Dole, he may have calculated, would help him restore uh, support there. Yeah, in fact, I think it's a source of some contention, because he was told very explicitly at, the, at that time, if you want to have a meeting with Governor Reagan after the nomination, yeah. okay, but under no circumstances are you to bring up the vice presidency. And of course, years later, Reagan said, "Oh, sure, I would have said yes." Oh, oh, sure. Absolutely, no, you can't win. No, no. <laughs> um, we all know. I mean, Ford talked about staying in the rose, or Dole talked about Ford staying in the rose garden. He went out in the briar patch. I mean, that's traditionally the role of the vice presidential candidate. I, I want to say one thing, uh, and uh, I'm not sure how solid I am in this, but I have this recollection that Reagan never really went out and tried very hard to get Ford elected. So, so it, it uh, and if he had, I think it might have elected him. Yeah. Well, in states like we Mississippi. We were that close, yeah. And southern Ohio. Yep. I mean, places that yep. Reagan, yeah. Yep. In fact, I've often thought, and it's based on some, some factual basis, that one of the things that brought 
Presidents Ford and Carter together in later years. Yeah, it was just that. <laughs> <That's right> <laughs> <laughs> They'd both run against him, and I'm not sure they particularly <laughs> relished the experience. They were still thinking about it. <laughs> I think they were maybe still thinking about it. <laughs> um, the vice presidential candidate does traditionally sort of carry the, you know, the burden of of, of, of being more partisan. Um, yeah. uh, we know about what Dole was doing in '76. What what, what kinds of things were you, where, where were you going? Where were they sending you? And well, I had a, had a map, and it was all where you'd expect. I started on the East Coast. I went across the Midwest, and then I would uh, get to about Nebraska and jump over to the West Coast and make one or two trips through the South, and then I'd go back and forth. Uh, and uh, last week I almost lived in Ohio. I was yeah. there more than the county commissioners there, yeah. and we carried it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> Don't tell. True story. I, Lynn Nobzig had told me the story first, and Dole confirmed it. Talk about a seat of the pants. Oh, yeah. One day he was on the plane, looked at the map. He said, why don't we go there? <laughs> yes, like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, this is the last week is no longer strategic. <laughs> minute to minute. There is a quality. It's funny. There's a quality about Noel that I think would surprise people to hear it because they think of him as sort of this driven, single-minded, ambitious person who yeah, wanted to be yeah. president more than anything else. But there's also this oh, almost yeah. impish yeah. sense of the ridiculous about he, all of this. He, he, had, he had a, has a very healthy sense of the ridiculous. Uh, he also is a very serious, uh, substantial person who cares about his country. Um, the wonderful stuff he's done on veterans, World War II, um, he, he's been involved in so many things in his uh, post-public life. His leadership days as majority leader of the state at the U.S. Senate go down as great years in that Senate. And he, in his later years, he was almost the opposite of that first year. He, he was able to hold the whole Senate. He had the confidence of a lot of Democrats. He would stand up to his president or the president once in a while when he didn't agree with him. He was a, he was a man of the Senate. And um, I think this has all built uh, him into this extraordinary American that almost everybody respects. I can't tell you how many times he told me, in this place, you can't keep a grudge. No. And, and around this place, the only thing you have in the end is your word. That's right. And That's if it's no good, yeah. people will write you off. That's right. And, uh, and he, he was that person. Uh, and uh, that's what makes the Senate click when it clicks. You know, right after 70, he told me an amazing story. Um, it may have been the day after 76, certainly within two or three days. And he got a call from Hubert Humphrey. Yep. Do you know about that? Or, no, I, mean, I, well, don't, I don't he, know. That doesn't yeah, surprise me. Yeah, Hubert Humphrey called him, and I think that he said, you know, let's have lunch or something. Yeah. And he said, look, right now, you're, you know, you're going to get a lot of criticism. Yeah. And, but you know what you did, yeah. and you know where you were yeah. when you came out of that convention, and, and you know. Yeah. But I mean, just an amazing. Yeah. And and he, you say he never forgot that. Yeah. But that's also no, no, that, would, that would be that. That's a sign of what we're talking about. 
Dole and Humphrey were very close. It wasn't it was just a sign of how Dole was uh, broadening and deepening as, a, as an American leader. It began to show in these ways. Do you, um, has he ever discussed the debates with you since? No, no. <laughs> but, you, you know, I, I'd, I see him once in a while. I see him less than I used to, but uh, we always have a good time. We start talking right about things, and, uh, um, uh, and uh, we're good friends. Uh, we were good friends in that debate. I mean, that was one of the funny things. I knew he was having a bad night. <laughs> <laughs> Were you having a good night? Well, I ha- I've had worse nights. <laughs> <laughs> with a little help from the... Uh, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> that one night with Reagan wasn't much fun. Oh, well, but on the fr- first one you did, yeah, uh, that yeah, was the first but, one. Yeah. But, you know, it's, uh, again, it was a, he, he performed poorly the first night. And that's often the case, uh, sort of suicide. I was, do you think we put too much emphasis on debates? Because they're not really debates. They're not really debates in, in, in a college scholarly standard book. But they're the closest thing that the American people have in a campaign to look at their, their choices for president, the most important job in the world, in a way where they might learn something real and non-contrived. It, they get their cameras right on them. They get questions. Most of the answers are rote and boring. But it seems like in every debate, or in most debates, something happens, usually unanticipated, that gives you a glimpse of character or a glimpse of, of a weakness or something else or a strength, and the public catches it. And, and they're usually, uh, I don't know whether it's true with all these primary debates, but in the final election where you have two or three debates, usually they're massive audiences. And nothing moves America quite like one of those decisive moments in a debate. So I would say they are very important uh, to our country. And one of the few things that is truly democratic, I mean, everybody's there watching I think I think to the the one debate in eighty, yeah, which was I think most people agree pivotal yeah. in determining right. at least the dimensions of the outcome, if not right. the outcome. No itself. question about it. And when you stop to think about such extraordinary consequences growing out of a, a tossed off, you know, there you go again, or yeah, I mean, presumably that debate was all about Reagan demonstrating that he wasn't. That's, that's what, what I he'd think. Been. I think the, yeah. the, the, there was a big national concern that he wasn't ready or was overripe uh, for the presidency. And he went in there and stood and uh, was assured and carried his own. And, uh, 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 and the public went out of that debate feeling that he could be president. Uh, similarly, when I debated with Reagan, the first night he really, I think, shook public confidence Second night, and people, when he came on the stage the second time, was could this guy still be president? He looked good and confident. Public was reassured, and I always thought that was the end of the, the campaign. There, when you were vice president, what kind of contact? Of course, because you're presiding over the Senate, but you're presumably up there quite a bit of the yeah, time. Yeah, I was up there. Um, and of course, by this time, Dole obviously thinking about running yeah. in 1980, yeah. which is going to 
Lindeman an even more partisan too. Well, he was always yeah. running. You know? He liked Humphrey. There's something out there to eat. And yeah, I, I think I remember at some point, I, didn't President Carter try, I guess, to get his vote on the Panama Canal Treaty? I think there was a. Yes, did uh, he vote no on the Canal? I think he voted yeah, no. Yeah, well, we tried to get everybody. Um, I think I talked to him. And this, I think he'd spoken out on it so often for so many years, he didn't feel he could seriously study it. We, we did get quite a few Republican votes because, as you know, Ford and uh, I think Nixon, a lot of uh, Kissinger, a lot of Republicans had urged that adoption of that Canal Treaty for years. But uh, I guess in that case, Dole didn't come around. I, I, I don't remember talking to him about better did. I think I remember somewhere seeing, I think in the course of this series, yeah. President Carter saying that was the toughest. Oh, Toughest thing he had to do, and, and frankly, for which he got no credit. It, it was the most joyless victory I've ever had in politics. When we finally got the votes, which nobody thought we could do, uh, the polls showed that something like 60% of the American people were opposed to it. We never did persuade Americans that that was the right thing to do, even though now the Panama Canal has been a tremendous success. It's prosperous, it's stable, it's all the things we couldn't quite get done when we controlled it as a colony. But right then, you weren't going to sell it, and maybe eight senators lost their next election. That's right. Because they voted for it. Yeah. yeah it was, Adam Clymer has a new book coming yeah. out. Uh, on this? On this. Oh, which, yes. And he argues that it really is the birth of the modern conservative I mean, it kept Reagan's career going oh, yeah. in 76. We had, I know this is not about Hayakawa, but we had this wonderful true story. We were trying to get Hayakawa to vote for the treaty, and he had campaigned against it in California on the grounds that it was ours. We stole it fair and square. So <laughs> I heard a rumor he was, he, there was something that he might, because I went to see him. I said, Senator, you know, we really need you. You can, you, you, you can really help us here. And he said, well, he said, uh, President Carter is shaky on foreign policy. He's not getting good advice. He said, if, he, if, he, if we could set up some way that he would listen to me and I could come down and you know, tell him some things he needs, uh, he said, I would consider voting for this treaty. So I called the president. I said, in about 10 minutes, I'm going to have <laughs> Here's what he's going to propose. So we placed the call. I go through it. The president said, yes. He said, I agree with you, Senator. He said, you know, I'm sitting down here all alone working in this big White House. I don't, everybody comes here, wants something. I never, never get to hear the kind of independent voice you'd bring to this thing. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> and and uh, Hayakawa said, well, maybe we ought to agree to do it every two weeks or so. And Carter said, no, let's not do that. We may need to do it more often. <laughs> So Hayakawa votes for the for the treaty. <laughs> Our great and, victory. And, and presumably the, the bi-weekly meetings did not materialize. I doubt it. <laughs> Among other things, that's fascinating because it does it it uh, it, it belies the, the popular notion of, of Jimmy Carter as no, someone he, who's not politically and he's, agile. You know, he's fast too. His mind's very quick. You know, it's interesting. I'll never forget when we dedicated the Dole Institute. Yeah. Of all the things that happened that week, I think the thing that Dole most appreciated was President Carter's presence. Yes. 
he was, and it's, it's, it was fascinating. He, I'll never forget the morning of the dedication, uh, he was taking President Carter around on yeah. a tour. Yeah. And, and that day, or the next day, he sent Mrs. Carter a dozen red roses yeah. with a note. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. you know, and no. and he'll, he'll remember that till the day he dies. Yes, I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. And, um, you know, uh, we all need this. Um, I remember when Clinton and Bush won went down into the South Pacific after that huge tsunami and traveled through there. I think, it, and all the polls showed that America's appeal in that region jumped double or triple. I mean, it's a, we need more of this. The public wants it, not just as a show. They want to feel it. Why is it, though? What is it about the political process that you have to be an elder statesman before you can yeah. be a statesman? Well, most of these people that we're talking about show those symptoms while they were in public life. I don't think it works. Uh, at midnight in your life. I think it's something that you, you earn over the years, uh, and Dole did that. And you think in some cases they would have liked to have done more, but yeah. the political process yes. as it has evolved makes it yeah. difficult? I, I think the pressure is always on uh, to uh, you know cut this thing politically uh, when maybe personally you'd like to uh, compromise some way. A couple of the quick things. One is... Uh, um, I realize you were out of office at the time, but you must have been following all this. I wonder if in people all talked about, well, the public began to think that he changed and, and that he changed. But I wonder if the change hadn't occurred long before 1981. And partly, for example, once he became chairman of the Finance Committee, all of a sudden, for the first time in his career, he's responsible yeah. for something. I mean, as oh, he yeah. said, you, know, you can go on putting out press releases yeah. or you can try to pass laws. Yeah. And... Yep. He hadn't had that responsibility. You, you, you got it. Because I think if, if you, if, if you want to be a really good chairman of the Finance Committee, you've got to get into, you have to understand those issues, very complex. I mean, there's a lot of professors in the best law schools that aren't as good on these issues as a good chairman of the Finance Committee. They're very complex. If you knew Russell Long, whatever you thought of him, boy, he had a mind on him. And, and so, so did Bob Dole. And secondly, you get into the middle of these issues and you realize how complex it is. The trade-offs, the, you know, the, the effect on the economy, the, the fairness of the, uh, the, the revenue burdens, all, all of those things um, come in on top of you. And uh, I think uh, partly you get a sobered sense on the available room for maneuver that changes the way you look at things a little thing, a little bit. And then secondly, I think you're sobered about the complexity of it, and you're less breezy than you've been about things uh, before. What kind of chairman was Russell Long? Uh, uh, um, I love the guy. Uh, brilliant. Uh, knew the uh, knew the Senate, the laws, uh, clever. I mean, he knew how to handle tax laws. He only called them up the day before Christmas or something like that. He would never give you an extended period to work on his bill. Um, funny man, so funny, you know. Did he talk about his dad? 
Yeah, he talk about his dad. Talk about Uncle Earl mostly, um, and he'd say, uh, "Don't tax you, don't tax me, tax that fellow behind the tree." You know, and he he was always uh, 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 cracking wise. Being chairman of the finance committee, I mean, what what kind of preparation was that for? Well, I, I was never chairman, but I was on the finance committee until I went uh, to the White House, and I was involved in, you know, as a younger member of the Senate, of that committee. So I, that's why I'm kind of sick, because it had an effect on me, I think. I don't think... What was that? Effect? Well, uh, uh, just when, when I ran for president, I think I had uh, a much more sober view about what was possible. Uh, and because um, once you get into that committee and you get in the numbers and 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 all the complexity of it and so on, uh, you you start thinking that way, and it affects your it affects you some way. I think I think responsibly. I think it's responsible, but I don't know if it's that effective uh, in terms of national politics. One also senses it's curious that Dole's national career sort of unfolded at a time when the party and the culture of conservatism was in many ways moving in a different direction. Yeah. And that he almost found himself running after the, I and, and so. not terribly gracefully. I mean, not very convincingly. Yeah. Um, I, the whole religious right, especially. I, don't, I wonder that, how much he believed in that religious right stuff. I, make, I think that when that thing got uh, red hot, almost all their national leaders had to mouth it but I, this is not fair to Bob because I remember talking about. I really wonder how much he really saw that as uh, as uh, good politics or good for the country. Uh, the same thing about this um, Reaganomics, these massive tax cuts, and this uh, voodoo idea that the more you cut taxes, more revenue you're going to get. It's never worked, but that's that, for a while that was party doctrine. I don't think he ever believed that. Matter of fact, he told me once he didn't think it worked. Yeah. And I think it's partly because he'd been on the finance committee and knew how things worked. In the, in the 90, spring of, no, fall of 95, from, yeah. from the outside, I wrote him a memo. Yeah. And I said, you know, basically you were a better candidate in 88 because you were yourself. Yeah, And the I one think thing so. you have going for you yeah. is, I mean, you're not Reagan, you're not JFK, you're not a lot of things. You're more Truman-esque. Yeah. You've got this plain-spoken yep. authenticity. Right. And once you sacrifice that, yeah. and what you're doing right now is feeding the crocodile. Yeah. And, and they, they don't believe it. They don't believe what no. they're hearing. No. And it's, you know, anyway, anyways, he, he leaked that memo <laughs> to Time Magazine. He got you in trouble. me down. <laughs> got me denounced by George Will on, uh, on the Brinkley Show, because, of course, Will's wife was running all of that stuff. Yeah. And, um, and, he, and he, he said, he told Tom, yeah, I keep that memo on my desk. I look at it every day. Well, he was sending signals out yeah. to the governors and the yeah. moderates and saying, yeah. I don't really believe this. Yeah, <laughs> right. I don't think he did. I don't think he did. Did you ever have a situation like that in your own party or in your own career where you, know, I had, you felt you had to kind of sign on to something that you weren't? I, I had an understanding with Carter. I said, look, when, when we talked, first about running together. I said, you know, um, I love the Senate. I don't, I don't have to do this. 
I think I can help you as much or more as a senator, as I can as a vice president. But if, if you want this to go ahead, the one thing you have to let me do is keep my dignity. I cannot demean myself out there making arguments I don't believe in. And so if we get into a situation where you're for something that I can't support, just allow me to shut up. I, I, I know I can't in this business go out and attack the head of the ticket. The issue never came up, and some minor things came up. But uh, that's, we'd actually talked about how we would handle that. Was that influenced at all by, by the example of Hubert Humphrey? Yes, yes. And I think Humphrey, if you read Humphrey's autobiography, that chapter in there where he talks about how, you know, he got into this uh, cheerleading on the war, which he actually didn't like at all, had written a letter to the president uh, saying, you know, we got to be worried about where we're going. I, he said that really hurt him, and people looked at him differently, and he knew it. What, um, how do you think Bob Dole should be remembered? I think he should be remembered as a very fine American who served us uh, uh, in war and came up from uh, a, a impoverished background and developed into one of the most impressive leaders in his time, and that he serves as a model of how uh, growing men and women ought to work together when they get in power in America. And he was an example in his later years in the Senate of what a senator should be. He's also, I think, like you, or I think of Jimmy Carter, the number yeah. of people, he never forgot where he came from. No, no, no. And, and I like that about him. When you're with him alone, you don't have any of this, uh, you're with a great man here at all. You just talk like the kids I talked to when I was a small, in my small farm towns. Yeah, that's very important to him. And, you know, that uh, uh, experience that he had in the military in, in Italy, which nearly took his life, I had a couple of friends who were up there with him at the time. One of them ran the Vale Mountain for some years. They told me what they went through there. Amazing stuff. Do you think it defined him? Anyway, I don't. I, I don't think it defined him, but I think it. It sort of. Uh, this is. This is. I my guess that it was a central part of his life. Um, that it matured him, that he was struggling between whether he would be angry about carrying this terrible burden or whether he'd be a bigger person because he could handle it and move on. And that's what he did. And so I, I think it had a lot to There's to do a theory that he became sort of obsessed with demonstrating his independence. I mean, just because yeah. you can't move, yeah. you know, and over time, and that that really carried off over and made him impossible to manage. I mean, it's hard to oh, imagine anyone. You mean when he was running? Yeah, anyone oh, less sure. amenable to yeah. to having handlers oh, yeah. handle him. Yeah, no, he's he's the handler's nightmare. I'm sure he. Yeah, he was not uh, a modern, manipulable public relations uh, figure at all. I think he was Bob Dole. 
from Russell, Kansas. And in an odd way, yeah. television yeah. both worked against him. Right. And in some ways, since 96, it's worked for it. I mean, it's yeah. shown him to, yeah. to advantage. Yeah. Well, he, he lost, uh, and, but, but I, I don't think the people lost respect in him. That's an important distinction, I think. It's possible to lose both the election and self-respect. That's bad. But if you don't lose, if you've conducted yourself in a responsible way, if you've tried to use that period to debate real issues and you've treated the public with respect and done what candidates should do for them, and then when it's over, people say, well, we don't want you as president, but we like you. That's not bad. And that, and that answered the last thing, because yeah. you, you both belong to this club yeah. of people who've run. Yeah. Um, and uh, how, you know, how does that affect the rest of your life? Um, have you ever compared notes about the process? Well, or, we, uh, you know, it's just kind of subliminal when we're together. We both know. Um, uh, For example, would you, would you agree that campaigns have become, say, over the last generation, less substantive or or or? or at the presidential level, that they tend to be uh, more driven by, well, in well, some well, ways extraneous. Uh, I think I think it's up to, somewhat up to the candidate. You've got more opportunities for substance now than before because with the internet yeah. and with the the modern ways of communication, you can get the record out. You can get the issues out. Uh, these debates, although they're truncated and uh, almost ludicrous sometimes. At least the public has a chance to see um, them performing. Um, uh, the thing I, what bothers me about politics is that it's becoming so incredibly, almost immorally expensive. Uh, when I was nominated in uh, seventy in in eighty four. I raised about $45 million over two years, a lot of money. But then when I got nominated, I got a check for $45 million under the federal law, and I never had to make another phone call. That was it. Now these candidates, look at them. They have to raise $100 million before the first primary, and they have to figure on another two or $300 million. And both the process of raising that money and the kind of negative, uh, um, twisted attacks that are just constantly coming, raining down on everybody. I think it's cheapened the process. It's made uh, the election of a president less dignified. And, and I think you can't throw all that mud all that time without leaving uh, residue of cynicism and uh, anger. And finally, what happens in the current context where the campaign's been going on for a year? Yeah. And we have another year right. to go. Right. What what right. does that do to the mandate? Yeah. And it's so tiresome. Uh, you can see it on the candidates' eyes. You just look at them. They're already getting tired. Um, I remember I had been on the campaign trail, I think, for a year. And I had a year to go. And the Prime Minister of England called an election, and 15 days later, she was re-elected. I said, this is not <laughs> I got a year to go here. But that's the American system. Yeah.